Dateline, December 12, 1941. Silent galleries watch war vote, hear President's message and roll call on Germany, but refuse to stay for Italy. Washington, December 11th. Without hesitation and without debate, and as rapidly as preliminary procedures would allow, the Congress cast two more war votes today to carry the United States formally and constitutionally into battle to the finish with the access on all fronts. And no members of either house voted no on going to war against Germany and Italy. One representative, Jeanette Rankin of Montana, who voted against the 1917 declaration of war against Germany, and who voted on Monday against accepting the Japanese challenge in the Pacific, voted present. Substitution by unanimous House consents of Senate text to prevent procedural delays removed even this reservation. Formally, the Senate voted war against Germany by 88-0, but when the resolution accepting Italy's declaration followed, they picked up two more votes by senators having reached the floor after missing the first speedy vote. In the House, the roll call on the resolution against the German government showed a vote of 393-0. to zero. Six additional members appeared for the tally on the resolution of Italy, making the final vote 399-0. to zero. Vincent Halifax, a British ambassador, and Lady Halifax leaned tensely over the rail while listening to the brief words of Roosevelt being read and departed before any votes were cast. Visitors' gallery of Senate and House were crowded and silent throughout the reading of the message and throughout the slow, methodical roll-calling on the decision against Germany. When the voting against the resolution against Italy started, the spectators began to lose interest. In the House chamber, the leave-taking was so general and so noisy that Speaker Rayburn halted the ballot counting to restore order, yet the exodus continued. In 1940, the only thing Ralphie wanted for Christmas was a Red Ryder Carbeam Action 200-shot range model air rifle. And he did everything in his power to get it. But let's be honest. If Ralphie was an 11-year-old boy in 1966, he wouldn't care a good goddamn about a Red Ryder BB gun. What would he ask for for Christmas? In 1966, Ralphie would have asked for the Crossman M1 Carbeam BB gun complete with metal magazine BB holder, wood stock, movable carrier bolt for the loading of the BBs. Now if you're anything like me, you probably didn't know that this BB gun existed, nor did I until about four weeks ago. One of the things I'm still kind of getting used to being in radio for five years and now doing these podcasts and having an audience base is every once in a while someone will reach out to me because they have found something that they know that I may have an appreciation for. And this happened to me about four weeks ago. On my D-Train page, uh, my Facebook page, for those of you who don't know, uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is one of three podcasts that I currently work on. Uh, one of the other podcasts I have is called the Waterman and D-Train Show. Now, D-Train is a name that I acquired while working in terrestrial radio for five years. And uh, the Waterman is a guy named Dave. He's been part of the radio show that I used to produce off and on for about 17 years. And so he and I got along great, and we host an all-around entertainment podcast called The Waterman and D-Train Show. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Google Music, pretty much anywhere. Or the quickest way, just go to d-410.com. You can also find my other podcast there, Failed to Fail. It's a motivational podcast, but that's neither here nor there. The whole purpose of this is on my D-Train page, one of my listeners named Corey Carlson reached out to me, and he sent me this message. He said, hey... I have something I picked up on a job site a few years back, 
It's been chilling in my closet collecting dust that I think you may have an appreciation for. His next line said, I have a Crossman M1 Carbine BB gun. Well, this sparked my interest because as I just said previously, I never knew these things existed. Um, growing up as a child in Kentucky, I had a small arsenal of BB guns. I had rifles, I had uh, single shot center brake pellet guns, um, the Crossman pistol that also shot little darts into a um, dartboard. And so I was intrigued by this and he sent me a picture and I quickly started doing some research on this Crossman M1 carbine. And what I found out is it originally came out in 1966. And overall the width and the length are just about dead nuts onto an original M1 carbine. Now the stock has a little, little bit smaller diameter simply to better fit small children's hands. Looking at it from a distance, the first thing you'll notice between a real M1 carbine and the Crossman M1 carbine, it does not have the sling slot on the butt stock. Let me hear you say that five times fast. Because they have no purpose to sling this thing. Now as you get a closer look at it, the rear sight does have a left, right, and vertical adjustment for windage and altitude, but the side rails of it look more like the rear sight off of an M1A1 Thompson submachine gun. So it's not exactly milled the exact same way, but it's close enough for a kid's toy. Now the cool thing about this one is you load it by pulling the charging handle back. Now if you're familiar with the M1 carbine, you'll know that on the top of the handstock, um, milled out in the wood is like a little reservoir. It runs from the charging handle down to the barrel where the wood stops. Well inside that reservoir there's a little tiny hole a little bit larger than the diameter of a BB. So when you slide the charging handle forward, believe it or not, it opens a little tiny door at the end of the reservoir on top of the handstock and that's where you can kind of roll the BBs down that reservoir if you do it slow enough or you know you can use it to at least assist to get the BBs into the chamber and that's where you load your BBs at. And then you slide the charging handle back it closes the door. Now the other unique thing about this BB gun is the way it cocks. You know we're all familiar with how the Red Ryder BB gun because it looks like a Winchester so you have the rear cocking handle on it. Uh, we've all had the old daisies and crossmans from back in the 80s and 90s where you simply pulled the wood handstock down and forward to cock it. No, on the Crossman M1 carbine you actually put your hand kind of around the front sight and you compress the barrel down into the receiver if you will and then pull it back up so they did it that way to help preserve the appearance of it being an M1 carbine so instead of having it being a center break or a weird you know cocking motion of the hand grip you just put your hand around the front sight compress it pull it back up and you're charged and ready to fire and as I said before this does have a magazine on it but the magazine doesn't load the BBs into the chamber it's simply a way to carry more BBs. You know, if you're a kid in 1966, you're out on some farmland, you're out in the woods, you're out running the alleys, wherever you shot your BB guns back then, what a better thing to have built into your gun than a reservoir to hold more BBs. And apparently they had three variants. Some places say two, but I just watched a video where a guy claims there's three. The original variant that ran, I believe, from 1966 till 1968 had a wood stock and a metal magazine on it. Now, as I just said, I saw a video where a guy claims there's two variants of the Woodstock. One of it's pretty much flat, and then the other one has some tapered edges on it. The second true variant that came out in 1968, to lower the cost of the gun, they switched to a synthetic stock that they called Crosswood. And instead of having the cherry look to it like a regular M1 carbine or an M1 Grand, it has more of a blonde white pine look to it. But they did do a pretty good job making the synthetic wood grain 
but it is lighter. You know, it has a hollow plastic sound to it. And as far as collecting goes, clearly the first variant with the wood and the metal magazine is the one everybody wants. Which just reminded me, I forgot to mention, on the second variant with the synthetic stock, it also has a plastic magazine. So that's the two huge differences, the plastic stock and a plastic magazine. Well, I just so happened to get the original variant. And, you know, the thing needs work. It's super old. Um, it, it cocks, but it does not contain compression or it will not hold compression. The, the valve seals need to be replaced. But the thing's super cool. Um, it fits in with my World War II stuff. Over the years, I've kind of inadvertently become a vintage air gun collector. Not only do I now have the M1 carbine, I do have a Red Ryder BB gun that belonged to my stepfather and an old Daisy pump action shotgun. Well, it's technically our air rifle, it only shoots one round, but it looks like a shotgun. And so it's nice to add to the collection. I just thought I would share it with you guys, being the World War II fans that you are, and maybe uh, enlighten you on something that perhaps you didn't know about. Now, if you go to my YouTube channel, I did post a video on the Facebook page, but because the way I shot the video, I was trying to be sneaky about what the item was before I talked about it. And so the title of the video is Who Knew? Well, because the title really didn't talk too much about what the context of the video was, I don't think a lot of people saw it. So if you actually want to see what this thing looks like, I'll repost the video on Facebook and you can go to whatsthescuttlebutt.com or uh, just go to my YouTube channel and you can find it there and uh, check that video out. And so what would Ralphie want in 19... So what would Ralphie want in 1966? That's right, Ralphie would ask Santa Claus for a Crossman M1 carbine. But while we're on the subject of Ralphie, um, over Black Friday I put up a discount on our shirts on the whatsthescuttlebutt.com page and the d-410.com. And one of the uh, shirts people tend to get a kick out of is I made the Ugly Christmas shirt. Um, clearly no one wants to buy sweaters, but it kind of looks like the Ugly Christmas sweater. It has the pattern of the red and white snowflakes. And below the top banner there is a picture of an M1 Garand. And below that in child's writing it says dear santa all i want for christmas is an official springfield armory m1 rifle semi-automatic chambered in 30-06 with a cherry stock complete with an eight round end block love ralphie and so if all you want for christmas is a new m1 garen perhaps you can let santa claus know by rocking this sweet ugly christmas shirt you can find it on our website what's the scuttlebutt.com and um, what i'm going to do is i have created a promo code for you guys who listen I will not post this anywhere on the Facebook page. This is simply for the listeners. If you buy any of our shirts, not just this one, but any of our shirts, when you enter the promo code, type in the promo code, all capital letters, all one word, I listen, and you will save $4 on your order. So enjoy that. Uh, pick up some shirts, spread the love, and uh, let's get to it.
and welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II based podcast. And yes, we put the word based in there because we primarily try to focus on all things World War II, including interviewing vets, authors, and things of that nature. But oftentimes we find we interview a lot of World War II reenactors, well, because who better to know this history? than amateur historians, and mind you, professional historians. We have interviewed quite a few reenactors that are also educators, whether college or at the high school or middle school level. And I wanna say thanks everybody for hanging out with us throughout this year. We're getting ready to move on to 2019, and things are gonna get bigger and better, and I appreciate everybody holding tight with us as we focused on what we wanted this podcast to be, what we wanted the format to be, and we are gonna continue on. And joining us on the phone for this episode, he is with the 2nd Ranger Infantry Battalion of St. Louis, one Kevin Owens. Kevin, how are you doing this morning? Very good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. The day just got started. What a better way to start the day before going off to work than to uh, do a podcast. I can't think of a better way. Um, I know you're a fireman and you primarily work evenings and weekends. Is that correct? No, I work actually... uh... 48-hour shifts, and then we get four days off. So it's evenings, weekends, holidays. It's it's a pretty mad schedule. Yeah, a lot of a lot of heavy rotations. Mm-hmm. How did you get into the uh, fire department uh, career path? Oh well, um, uh, honestly, um, I wanted to do some type of uh, service. It just depended, really. I mean, I. Growing up as a kid, you know, that's what brought me kind of into reenacting as well is, you know, just in awe of people who were, you know, able to make that sacrifice, you know, like, uh, like military was a huge influence and, and, uh, rather than go the way of the military, I actually went the way of public service and, uh, joined the, the fire department. Well, and you know, is better than I, but, um, my other business, I do a lot of IT work, and I've done, and I do actively work at a fire department on their network. But I was going to say, as you know better than I, a lot of guys after they come out of the service, they also go into mm-hmm. public service, uh, police departments, paramedics, and fire departments. So I'm sure you have served or, or currently serving with some guys who were, in fact, uh, did serve in the military as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've had a, a lot of guys uh, when I first started, uh, a lot of Vietnam veterans. Uh, and then as time went on, those guys went on to retire and now I'm getting, uh, enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom veterans and, uh, you know, <clears throat> post that, uh, that era of guys who've, who've been in and out and come home and decided to get into public service as far as, you know, the fire department goes. Uh, so yeah, I've worked with veterans of all different types from all different branches. Um, and it's, it's always been a pleasure, you know. Uh, talking military with them, and the funny thing is, when you talk with them, uh, and you kind of speak their language a little bit because you understand what the, uh, after talking to so many vets, what, what it is that they've been through, and you kind of pick up their lingo, and they talk a lingo back to you. It's like they kind of like you a little bit more. <clears throat> they uh, um, warm up to you a, bit, a little bit more because you know what they're saying, and sure. you kind of understand a little bit. Now, in your experience, do you find that those guys coming in from the service, they sort of transition better into what you guys are doing as far as your structure and your um, your daily routine than someone who's coming from the civilian world? Um, I think they have a, a better understanding. 
Um, a lot of the terms that we actually use since, you know, I, in essence, the fire department is somewhat of a paramilitary organization. You know, you have, you have, uh, structures as far as officers and, uh, like non-commissioned type officers, which, you know, depending on the department, it would be, uh, you know, like a lieutenant or something like that, or, you know, but, but there's, there's that structure that is also there. Um, so they kind of, it, it kind of just, you know, is an, a new walk in the park for them, you know, as they go from the, the really strict military to a little bit more loose, but still has structure kind of like the military. So for them, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier than most people that, you know, kids come in and they uh, just walk in off, well, not off the street. Of course they have to do, you know, go through school and training, but you know, most kids that come, you know, out of, out of high school, or out of college and, and come into the business, they, you know, they, 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 they're good kids and they know what they're doing. But, uh, you know, as, as far as military goes, they have a little bit more understanding of the, how the structure works. And it may sound a little funny to those who really haven't put much thought into it, but there's something to say about a group of guys who already are used to wearing heavy, cumbersome equipment in hot weather, especially down here if you're a fireman in Florida, you know, or while well, I mean, being a fireman in general, the, those uniforms are heavy and you're you know, as the title dictates, you're in a hot environment such as a structure fire. And so it, the transition of going from, you know, a civilian getting used to wearing heavy gear and being in an uncomfortable environment and being able to function appropriately and properly in that condition, you know, obviously the guys coming out of the service, they've already are used, clearly the gear is different, but they're used to being in this sort of situation where you basically have to ignore that discomfort and get the job done. Yeah, it's it's most definitely a young man's job. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now from when I started, I was uh, yeah, you know, I was just you know like a bull in a china shop, you know, and and I I wore all this stuff, and it was back then it was a lot less ergonomic. Um, the stuff that you wore was kind of like a one size fits all, and uh, now that they've made things that are <clears throat> a little bit easier to wear, they rest on your hips rather than on your shoulders. Um, which, you know, makes you actually work a little more because, you know, that's, it's not that, it's not as cumbersome as it used to be, you know, it's not as, as difficult to wear as it used to be because they, you know, after, you know, I guess the last 20 years of figuring out what, what gear should feel like when you're wearing it, what can make you stay in longer, what can make you work longer, uh, is, is the best case scenario. Um, and they've, they've really come far with the technology that's, that's helped us do our job you know, more efficiently and better. What, now you kind of hinted to it back at the beginning of this, um, you're getting in, introduced and involved in the World War II reenacting. How did that happen for you and when did it happen for you? Well, um, like I said, I've always, I've always looked up to military, you know, it's like they, they're, you, it takes a lot of guts to put your life on the line like that, to, to be able to, you know, at any moment's notice saying you're getting on a plane and you're going to go fight an enemy or, you know, you're going to, you know, any moment's notice you're going to leave to go fight a war or what have you. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, it, same thing happens with, you know, police and fire as well. It's uh, To me, it seems kind of different. Um, what really kind of transitioned from my life when I, I, I really always had that interest uh, you know, the weaponry, uh, the tactics, the, uh, the clothes, <clears throat> especially the different eras and how, how you look from like World War One to World War Two, you know, and then you get into, you know, uh, Vietnam where they have actually camouflage or they had it in World War Two, of course, but 
the standard uniforms were more camouflaged, you know, with, uh, you know, like the old tiger track camouflages, you know, which were pretty neat looking. Um, and then into the eighties, you know, just the whole history of it. It was just really fascinating to see the, uh, word I'm looking for. Progression. Yeah. Progression. Uh, the, yeah, the evolution, that's the word I was looking for evolution of, of how things have changed over the years and, you know, but at the same time, how they stay the same. It's kind of like you just said with the fire department stuff, um, being a World War II reenactor or even a World War One, or just a living historian in general and you're out in an event, especially one with a huge timeline, you can actually see the progression and evolution of the gear from World War One right. to modern day. And as you said, nowadays the more modern stuff is more ergonomic. Back then they were mm-hmm. more concerned about how do we get this on their back and make them move it. Now it's how do we get this on their back, causing less back issues, making them move it but more comfortably so they can get the job done more proficiently. Yeah, well, the, the unfortunate thing is, you know, as far as World War II goes, uh, the haversack wasn't exactly practical. Exactly. You know, for anybody who's, who's folded one up, it's not exactly a, hey, let's get something out of the bag real quick. There's, you know, no way. Yeah, the Marine Corps, but, uh, um, the Marine Corps web gear was definitely a little um, easier to handle. Yeah, so it's it, to me it was like, uh, I, I think it was around 2000, 2004, uh, I was like, you know, I... I was like, I want to buy one of those M1 Garands, you know, and I, I uh, looked around at different places and I found one for a decent price and I picked it up and I, I was talking to a buddy of mine and, and he was actually a cop and he said, Oh, you bought an M1. I said, I did. He said, well, that's the hard part. I said, mm-hmm. What are you talking about? He goes, you need to get yourself into World War II reenacting. And I was like, there's such a thing? He goes, yeah, because everybody's heard there's Civil War reenacting. Sure. Everybody's heard about that, but... But uh, I was like, there is such a thing as World War II reenacting. He said, oh, absolutely. Here's here's a guy you want to talk to. So I went and talked to him. And uh, basically over the course of a year, um, I had some difficulties with a few health issues. And then uh, over the course of the year, I figured, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this because it really looks neat. I could learn a whole lot from it, make some friends. And, and uh, little did I know what I was in for when I first started. So Yeah. And now the first group you joined up with, is that the same one you're with now? Yes. Give us I'm a, viciously loyal. Yeah. Well, you know, and depending on where you're at and what state, there's a lot of groups, and some groups, you know, are on their way of dismantling due to some of the key guys aging out or due to what have you. And so it's, you know, to be with the same group for, you know, what, 17, 16 years now, that's, that's a pretty good stretch. And not to mention the fact of having – a same group that's still together and actively doing it for that amount of time is pretty impressive uh-huh. as well. Yeah, we, we're actually a, a pretty old group. Um, I have a lot of uh, old paperwork because, you know, I, getting into the history of World War II and then you get into the history of what we do, uh, I've come to find out a lot of interesting fun facts and uh, found, you know, you know, through making these friends and making these contacts, found a lot of interesting paperwork back from the mid-70s. Nice. And we were, like, a lot of, one of our current members uh, was actually one of, you know, one of the, the founding members, or founding board members of some of these organizations that are out there today. So, uh, you know, it's it's weird just looking at this paperwork 
and seeing, you know, the names of, of guys that I've heard of and guys that I know of and guys that I actually know. And these were the guys that started it all, you know, uh, it's, it's really interesting to learn all that history and, uh, to be able to pass that on and, you know, talk to other reenactors like yourself about it, you know, and, and, and your audience as well. Um, but it, it was really kind of strange how a lot of, a lot of it started here at home in St. Louis. And, uh, at least if, if anybody has any further knowledge, I would love to hear it. But, uh, some of the most, you know, earliest documented stuff was like 1973 to 1976. So really interesting stuff. Well, let me ask you this. A lot of people, when they, get involved in a particular group and reenacting that group a lot of time is founded and the group they represent is founded because that group that they're representing actually were stationed in that area or had something to do historically mm-hmm. with that area is that why your group leaned towards the uh, second ranger infantry battalion was there any connection no, with st louis at the time no from what i understand of listening to the old guys there was just a bunch of different groups and you know as you may know, and as some of your listeners may know, you know, there's, there's personality conflicts and, and things happen. Um, so some guys just splintered off and said, well, let's just do this because, you know, D Company 2nd Battalion Rangers, you know, climbed up Point to Hawk and, you know, f- climbed up a cliff and yep. fought the Germans, you know, under fire. So it's a pretty impressive thing in and of itself, you know, and just their history was just incredible. So that's how they actually came up with the, with what they wanted to do. And, and strangely, they, they had some pretty interesting um, requirements. I mean, you had to, and this is back in the 70s, you had to actively learn how to repel and know your ropes and knots to be able to join the group. So, I mean, this, this is not true of today, but back in the 70s, that was kind of a, a big deal back then to them. Being in 2018, looking back at it, it seems a little um, extreme, but do you think that it would behoove some of our groups, obviously not to go to that level where you're, okay, we're going to do rangers, you need to go down to repelling school and learn how to repel, but do you think mm-hmm. it would behoove some of the the groups or even maybe our community to try to get back at least some of the basic standards? Because I don't even know, you know, I would assume that there's groups out there who don't even require their guys to get together to do basic you know, drilling and things of, you know, that military nature. And I think mm-hmm. it, it may have an effect on the um, the optics or the cohesion of that group when they're at an event. You know, kind of like I mentioned on uh, the last episode, down here, one of the things the Germans are really good about at events, it doesn't matter if they're just going from their camp to the, you know, area to which we're getting ready to hold our event. Um, if they're moving in, you know, if their whole group is moving, it's not just two guys heading off to, you know, grab a snack somewhere. They move in formation. They march in mm-hmm. formation to wherever they're going, whereas some of the GI guys, they just grab their web gear, grab their grand, and they just kind of talk and chat and mosey and mill out to the area to it, which they're going to do their event. Tactical gaggle is what we call it. What's that? Tactical yeah, gaggle? We call it tac- yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it, for so many different reasons, I mean, it... When you have a group of guys who are all like-minded and want to know the history, that you know they want to do it right. You know, I mean, that's what our group is always about. We want to do it right. We want to look right. You know, there's some things that you really can't help. You know, but we want to do it as right as we possibly can. Very early on, uh, a lot of our guys, the conflicts that were going on was, you know, was, 
Uh, we had military people who wanted to do reenactments, and we had vehicle people who just basically wanted to go to parades, mm-hmm. you know, and there's this constant conflict of, you know, you know, we're just, you know, here is window dressing for the vehicle owners or, or the vehicles here to help the troops, you know, so there's a lot of conflict involved, you know, it's, it, it's, it's this, you know, it was a constant struggle. So some of the guys on the reenactment side were more or less like, you know, we want to do this right. We want to look the part. We want to you know, march. We want to drill, you know, and we practiced that. You know, this, I should say we, but I did do it. But this was done before I showed up. Um, and it actually does make a lot of difference when you've got about 30 guys walking unison, doing mm-hmm. Jody calls, and people stop and they'll look and they'll clap. And it gives you a sense of pride to know that, you know, you and your group did this together. And it gives a lot of you cohesion because the entire group looks at it and says, hey, we look really good. You know, we're doing this right. You know, and then when you go from like just your basic knowledge of your uniforms sure. to look right. And then you have your, you know, how do you march? How do you, you know, how do you do an about face? You know, are all of you doing it in unison? You know, and, and uh, things like you know, marching and, and doing, you know, uh, column left, column right, things like mm-hmm. that. And to, to be able to, you know, if you're on the outside column, you got to make two, you know, two short lefts, you know, and then you're back in column again, yep. you know, all these, these practices, you know, and the best part is when the military guys and the vets, World War II vets look at you and said, you guys do it right. And that's, that's what puts a lot of pride in your group. It brings together the unit, and you know, looks and says, "Hey, we're doing this pretty good." We, you know, it, it's just builds a lot of pride in in the unit, builds a lot of pride with the men, and I think it, it should be done more. Yeah, you know, and not a lot of guys are into that because a lot of guys are former former military. It's like, well, I didn't join this to be in the military anymore because I'm out of the military, and I understand that. Sure, you know, everybody comes in it for their own reasons, you know. But our group is kind of like, hey, we want to take it a step further and look the part. Well, and it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny you felt the need to use the term "take it a step further," um, because I was sitting here thinking as you're explaining this, we are all reenactors. Our whole goal is to reenact a soldier, and or a marine, depending on what you're doing, or a German. But anyhow, a soldier just in broad strokes. And what better way to portray a soldier than to learn how to do the soldiering, to, mm-hmm. to do the marching, to do the drills, the call to arms, you know, and all that stuff. And which also leads into everything you just said about unit cohesion. And by the way, doing everything you can to pre- to represent the people you're trying to represent in the most authentic way. Mm-hmm. There is something to be said, like you mentioned, about when you're, you're marching in column and you're going from point A to point B, the way that the casual observers, you know, it kind of excites them or how they interact because when we were in Alabama back in September and um, Company G was marching from the fort down to the marina, we had cars stopping and, you know, waving at us, honking at us, giving us the thumbs up. And it definitely Mm -hmm. adds to the experience of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's good for both sides. It's good for the public that watches it and the veterans that watch it. And it's good for you. You know, I mean, it's... It shows that you take the time. It shows that you, you you take that extra, you know, go the extra mile to, to learn how to do the, the small details that make you look like a World War II soldier or, or whatever area you wish to portray. But that, to me, that's important anyway. I, I, I would hope it would be 
or start to become more important to a lot to uh, more people in our community. Um, mm-hmm. How is reenacting in general, uh, you know, in in the St. Louis area and the surrounding states? Do you guys have a lot of um, coordinated, long time running events? You guys are there new ones kicking off? There's a public into it. What's the um, what's the whole uh, view towards reenacting up in the Midwest? It's, <laughs> um, I can speak for definitely the St. Louis area because I'm from here, but uh, reenacting in St. Louis is probably the best kept secret because uh, we have an event that's been going on ooh, probably since I think 78. Really? Um, yeah. Well, actually two events, I should say, since at least 76. Uh, the first event I'll mention is it's an event now called Weldon Creek. Um, and the event, the first published articles of the event was uh, in 1976, and I've got flyers for it, actually. Uh, it was a large-scale tactical battle. It was a national battle open to anybody from, you know, from across the nation. And uh, <clears throat> like I think one day they had a, a public battle where the public would come out and watch, and then the other two days it was pretty much go off in the woods and do tactical. Um, this went on for quite some time and then it just, I, somewhere after like, I think 85, I think it stopped. Okay. And, uh, I, the other, and of course in the last three or four years, it actually picked back up. Uh, there was more renewed interest in it. And so if any, any of your listeners out there knows of any other documented World War II reenacting events or anything like that, I'd love to know about it, but that is the actual from what I have seen and gathered, that is the first documented World War II reenactment battle anywhere. Uh, that's a nice uh, history to have, especially in your area. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, it's the first one, and you know, but to to be one of the first documented ones on in the nation. Period. That's that's a nice mm-hmm. flag to have in your, you know, your, into your your battleground, if you will. Yeah, I'm, I mean, like I said, from from all the things I've seen and heard, you know, I mean, you can't you can't recall everything from a period that you weren't there for. Sure. Like I, I was born in '76. You know, this was stuff was going on since before I was born. Um, and for the most part, you know, it was the first documented in '76. So they were probably getting together and doing things in '73, '74, whatever. And if they were, there's not much of anything is really written down that says, hey, we did this here. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the HRS. No, I'm not familiar. No. Um, the HRS is, is a historic reenactment, reenactment society uh, also started here. They're, they're a pretty big group. They're mainly out of the Midwest. Um, but they actually also started here as well in St. Louis. And like I said, I was looking through some of the paperwork, and they've had chapters from all over the United States, from Arizona to Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, everywhere, basically. Um, but uh, I don't know, derailed my train of thought. Um, I mean, that's, that's one thing we're good here. That good with here is uh, train of thought and derailing it. Let's do this yeah, for. I, I. No, go ahead. I remember. I don't remember what I was going to say. Um, in that time, uh, there's this, this second event that I, I was going to tell you about. Is We put on an event. Our group hosts an event 
the last full weekend of April every year at Jefferson Barracks in, here in St. Louis. Um, and it's been going on since, I believe, around 78, 78, 79, something like that. And uh, before, there was, there was a military vehicle a museum in Alton, Illinois, which is right across the river, and they were the main hosts of the event. You know, something happened. They lost their funding. They lost their building. I don't even know. The the history is kind of sketchy. You know, you, you don't get the entire story from this person or that person because not many of the guys are still around from that, that period. So just trying to, you know, put together the pieces, you know, the basic knowledge was the museum you know, closed down um, and people took took their private their collections and had them stored other places. So after a while, they couldn't host this event at Jefferson Barracks anymore. So our group co-hosted that event with the museum, and since they had to back out, we came in and we told you know St. Louis County Parks, and which is part of Jefferson Barracks is part of St. Louis County Parks. We said we would be able to take over the event and host the event, and we've been doing so ever since. So you're talking about at least a 40- to 41-year-old event that's been going on. And it's weird that, you know, to me, when I started in 2005, this was our cool event, you know, that, that we put on. And it has this template of, you know, you come in Friday night, set up your camp, you, have, you know, sit around the campfire and, you know, hang out with your friends and, hang out with friends you made from this state or that state, and they all come in and say hi to everybody. And then Saturday, you have two public battles. Saturday night, there's a dance. And Sunday at ours, we have one last battle around noon, and then around 4 o'clock, we, you know, strike camp and and pack everything up. And that's kind of, like, been the template for a lot of events we've gone to. And it's like, but these other events have been going on for, like, 32 years you know, or 15 years or what have you. And it's like, well, our event has been going on for like 41 years. Yeah. So we, we kind of, you know, <laughs> paved the way for actually having this national, you know, styled event that you go anywhere in the United States and it's kind of the same template. You know, I hate to say that the Rangers led the way on that, <laughs> but they kind of did. Sure. Um, but like I said, you know, I only know the history of what I've been told and, and locally and if, if anybody can give me any information of maybe I'm wrong but stuff that's out there that's I'd love to hear about it it's it's the history of our what we do is interesting as well to me well I want to get into the history of what you guys do as far as you know who you represent the second ranger infantry battalion for you know yes a lot of our listeners are reenactors and historians but some of them are people who just have a general interest and growing interest in World War II and how we'll kind of lead into that. Are you familiar with the uh, pen and sword publishing of the book called The Cover-Up at Point du Hoc? I've heard of it. I haven't been, haven't been able to read it, but if you could, you know, enlighten me a little bit, I'd well, love to hear about it. I'm not familiar with the book. The reason I brought it up is because I remembered I covered this a few episodes back where um, they're currently doing a filming based on this movie, I mean, based on this book, and um, clearly it's about, you, you know, the second Rangers, and it's Basically, they're doing a filming over at the um, Maisley Barracks or um, Battery. I'm sorry, Maisley Battery Maisley. Yes, they're doing a they're filming there, and they put out a call. And this was back in uh, September. They put out a call for um, basically American quote unquote American reenactors, because obviously this is being done overseas. But they're looking for uh, D-Day Rangers and Weimar reenactors, 
and they're basically who mm-hmm. want people of the appropriate age, you know, between 16 and 20-ish with obviously the complete kit. And they're, someone's actually, they're putting together a, I'm going to assume it's going to be like a TV miniseries. Mini I doubt it's going to be a full-fledged film, but it's going to be based mm-hmm. on this uh, cover-up of Point to Hawk. And I'm going to assume it's probably going to be in much of the normal history-based shows where they're doing their interviews and they use the reenactors for their fill-in scenes to kind of explain what they're talking about. And I didn't know mm-hmm. if that book or that topic had any, um, you know, had brought up any excitement in your guys' group because here, you know, another show is going to be produced and brought up about what you guys do and what happened at Point to Hawk. Yeah, we <clears throat> we, we were... I think years, a couple of years back, we were talking about the the Maisie battery and, and how it was uncovered, and you know some of that history that that's kind of been just forgotten and is, is coming to light now. Um, we haven't heard anything as far as any type of you know, TV show recruitment, um, but it's to me that's that's just another part that that interests me about you know about D Day that there was this whole other part that was there. I mean, you hear the accounts and you talk to the guys that were there and you listen to what they had to say and you don't hear anything about the Maisie battery. You know, you just, you just hear about the, you know, the mission that they went on. Yeah. Cause that's what they needed to know. Just for our listening audience, if you could just give us your little rundown on the uh, second Ranger infantry battalion. Okay. Well, the, uh, the second Ranger infantry battalion, uh, <clears throat> was, Training with the 5th Ranger Battalion at uh, uh, Camp Forest, Tennessee, which is outside of Tullahoma. Um, they trained and uh, went to England to train with the no- British Number no. 4 Commandos. Uh, and after they trained with the Commandos, uh, they entered onto D Day. D Company scaled the cliffs, Point to Hawk. Uh, on D Day, it was 250 men. Uh, and after the days of fighting, 91 were able to actually fight. The rest were either killed, captured, or wounded. Um, they were the first group to actually accomplish all of their objectives on D-Day, uh, from climbing the cliff to destroying the guns, which secondarily, the guns weren't where they were supposed to be. They were further inland. Uh, they destroyed a, a weapons cache and guns, and, or a, actually an ammo depot, I guess, if you want to call it. And they, they, they destroyed these 105-millimeter uh, guns, Basically fought off a couple counterattacks. Uh, they had to deal with an uh, an AA gun that was bearing down upon them. Once they did climb, once they're up on the cliff, or actually on the on the ground at the cliff, uh, and uh, they got chewed up pretty bad by that one. Um, they were later reinforced that evening by members of the Fifth Ranger Battalion, and uh, eventually were made relief when a few Shermans came running up the road, um, and. Uh, basically met all their objectives and um yeah, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm rambling sorry no, that's, that's all right yeah, that's that's pretty much what they did on d-day um then you go on to uh hill 400 in hurricane forest they made it up a 400 foot elevation uh hill that was a perfect observation area um lost a lot of men doing so held it held off from german attacks and uh the shame of it was all those men pretty much died for nothing because later on it, you know, fell back into German hands. But the whole idea of, of Hill 400 was it was a, a perfect observation spot that could see over, 
forgot the distance. It was, I think, a few miles distance. And it was, it was good to watch enemy troop movement from and everything. And they fought, they held it. And after that, they lost it. So it's, uh, those are the two big main things that the Rangers were new, were known for. Let me ask you this, going back to the recruitment for the Ranger Battalion. Obviously, we all know the story about the Airborne, how they would go out and recruit people and offer them the extra cash to jump out of planes. We know the primary focus of the Airborne is to go out, you know, kind of ahead of the main troop landings to secure primary points. For the creation of the Ranger Battalion, how was the recruitment done and what were their key roles? I mean, were they basically sent out kind of, the land equivalent of the airborne where we sent them out to do more difficult tasks or what, I guess my question is what makes, what separates the Rangers from the normal, normal infantry as far as recruitment and their, their job duties? Uh, Rangers were actually just, as you said, like, like the airborne, they were a special unit. Um, they did light infantry tactics. Uh, the first, third and fourth battalions in North Africa were always, you know, put on really heavy tasks. Uh, because they knew that they could actually do it. They were they were known for moving very far distances very fast. So the word around was, you know, they were elite because, you know, everybody knew that the Rangers were, were elite because, you know, Darby's Rangers led the way. And that's what the that's where the saying came from, you know. Uh well actually it came from lead Rangers lead the way it came from D Day, but Darby's Rangers were like really heavy hitters. Um, so they already had an established reputation. I mean, Rangers go all the way back, from, you know, revolutionary war. Okay. Uh, but they actually had, you know, more of a reputation during world war two. And people were like, or, or at the outskirts of the war, they're some of the very first U S soldiers to see combat, uh, in Europe with the parade. So basically, they already had this established reputation. It says, hey, they're special, they're elite, the pay is better, but you get to do better stuff. You know, you don't have like an infantry unit per se. You go in and you do special missions. Um, so people wanted to be part of that. They wanted to be part of the elite. You know, uh, the Airborne was brand new during World War II. They've never done it before. So that's why it was kind of like, eh, you know, we don't know too much about it, but it sounds kind of neat. You know, or, or the pay was better, as the guys always say. But uh, the Rangers already had an established reputation, so they were known for what they do. Uh, fortunately, the you know members of the first, and third, and fourth were decimated in several places, and you know captured and spent most of the war in POW camps. But still, their their attitude, their tactics, their strategy, it wasn't it was unconventional combat. You know, they they moved in smaller groups fast and met their objectives well and kind of going back to the comparison with the airborne you hear a lot of these vets say i joined the airborne because i wanted to be with the best i didn't want to be stuck in an infantry with a draftee or you know a gold brick who wasn't out to do his job to the best of his ability thus affecting my ability to survive the war i'm sure there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who went into the rangers with that same feeling one i want to be at the best of the best um, they have mm -hmm. higher physical standards higher you know standards to meet to weed out more of the gold bricks and, and the guys who are there just to be there and thus hopefully increasing my ability to survive but the ir irony there is, is they get sent out on a, the harder task and they they're mm -hmm. put into more danger um 
quickly and for longer periods in time than the guys whose job it is to come into police the area, secure it, and hold it. I guess that, that romanticized feeling that, you know, it's like all of these, the elites, you know, and I want to look good, you know, in that uniform with the Ranger on it. And, you know, they're, they're the best out there and I want to be part of that, you know, and, and there was, and no matter any, any veteran I've ever talked to, they always said the same thing. I was with the best. I was with the best, no matter what group it was, whether Mm -hmm. it was any of the Ranger battalions, any of the airborne, even any of the infantry, they always said I was with the best guys, you know, cavalry. I was with the best. So to me, it wasn't so much after all the you know guys I've talked to, it wasn't so much that one group was better over another. It's just that everybody was instilled that you are with the best, well, which I, gave them that you know, cohesion and that pride. Well, I guess what I'm getting to there is there's always the naivete of the young man who's going out to join boot camp, you know, to go enlist, and clearly they don't mm-hmm. know everything before they they go in, and so I was that's what I was kind of getting at that a lot of people probably joined with that naivete. From what I understand, it's like you, you don't just join the Army and go into the Rangers. Yeah. You're, you're in the Army already, and then it's like, well, I want to join this, you know, the Rangers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's one one specific, uh, there's one specific guy that was, which was interesting to me. I read it in the book uh, Dog Company. Uh, it was about D Company, 2nd Battalion, actually. And this guy made a very funny point where he, he was already in the army. He walked into the, into the office. I think it was Rudder's office. And he said, uh, he said, I want to join the Rangers. And the guy, Rudder looks at me, he says, well, you're missing two front teeth. He says, why don't, and I hear my trigger finger is still good. He goes, yeah. I, I, I want to fight. I want to fight him. I don't want to bite him. <laughs> so he was actually, uh, brought into the Rangers even with two missing teeth. I mean, I guess that was a a, a standard back then. Yeah, dental hygiene was there. very high back then. Um, one, I would assume a little bit for parents, but two, I would gather, um, obviously, you're going to be in combat. Nothing's wor- nothing's more painful and affects your, your ability to see, hear, and to operate then. I mean, if you've ever had a, a bad tooth, a rotted out tooth, or an infection in your gums, it's, it's, it definitely affects your ability to see, hear, um, even stand up in some cases, and I and I and I would assume that maybe somewhere somebody might uh, suggest that it had something to do with um, your ability to survive as far as consumption of food. But I don't know if that would. I would tend to lean more yeah, towards the digestion. Yeah, yeah, I would tend to lean more towards the way that a, you know, the pain that teeth can cause someone because I remember I had an abscess tooth shortly after I graduated high school because once I turned 18 my dad's health insurance and dental insurance dropped me so between 19 and 23 I just had this bad tooth and when I finally got insurance but I mean I would remember waking up at nights just screaming and just being in in insane agony and pain but these are all just assumptions on my part I've always heard and I've yet to find any documented research on why but yes they definitely put Clearly on eyesight, obviously, but dental hygiene as well, as far as the amount of mm-hmm. teeth you have and, and that. Why I don't, I haven't read the document of proof. And if somebody knows, please email it to me at mail call at com or send it through the Facebook page. But it would be interesting to see why there was such a high standard put on, you know, one's dental hygiene when it came to being a combat soldier. 
Uh, yeah, here's here's a funny kind of side note, and it's it's interesting. Uh, my um, my grandfather was actually in the 101st Airborne, and while he was in basic, uh, he they discovered he had periodontal disease, and they said we got to yank all your teeth out. So they yanked all of his teeth out, and they discharged him from the army. And if that wouldn't have happened. There's a slim chance that I would not be having this conversation with you. Wow, that's that's a very good point. It's weird though that they would take all his teeth out and then and then boot him out. You figure why would they yeah, spend the, the energy and the money if they're not going to continue to invest in his development? Mm-hmm. It's uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's the story I was told by my family. They never really kept any. He really didn't talk much about it, but they didn't really keep you know, real records. I, w- I would have loved to have found out, you know, who he was with, where, you know, of course he was probably in Tacoa someplace, but, sure. but um, where he was exactly, you know, they don't have his discharge papers or anything, you know, so. Yeah, my family's you know, the same. To know. My family's the same. It's pretty much anything I have is I just have an exact replica of his dog tags that I had made up. My, my aunt has his original mm-hmm. dog tags and she sent me the photo. And so when I had my dog tags made up, I made an exact replica of his. And I was able mm-hmm. to find a little bit of information from him with a service record, but not a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, you can also thank St. Louis about the uh, the records building that caught fire. Because <laughs> <laughs> every time you go to find out records on you know anything World War II, they kept all the records in one building. That building, you know, pretty much burnt to the ground here in St. Louis. That was God a long time ago. All paths into uh, St. Louis. Yeah, wonderful place. But, uh, but yeah, um, that history is, is pretty much gone. You know, I, I mean, I, I have, if I wanted to look up, you know, Morris Owens and 101st Airborne, I couldn't find anything on it because those records have all been burnt to, to ash. So, you know, um, I just pretty much have to rely on what family said. Yeah. Now and they're, they're relying on what he told them, which was very little. Mm-hmm. What, what do you got? Do you guys do very many events in the wintertime up there? Uh, yeah, we, we try to we go to Weldon Creek. Uh, we host a small battle here. We just had it on December 8th. Uh, we call it the River Battle because it's so close to the Missouri River. Um, so uh, what else do we do in the wintertime? The wintertime is a lot of just, you know, PR-type stuff, too. Sure. A lot um, of living history events inside museums. Yeah, um... More or less, like, uh, we we do, like, work in tandem with the parks because that's where we're pretty I, – I, I, we're an entity, but we base ourselves out of Jefferson Barracks, which is part of St. Louis County Parks. We actually have a building leased in Jefferson Barracks where we store all of our props and, and equipment for our uh, event in April, World War II weekend. So we we call ourselves kind of based out of Jefferson Barracks, even though we're not really – you know, based in where we have no mailing addresses to the place at all. It's just like a big storage building that's, that's there for us. So, How many guys do you have in your unit? I was looking through your Instagram photos this morning, and you seem to have, at least in some of the larger events when you guys do your group photos, you seem to have a fair amount of people in, uh, involved with your group. Well, we, we have about 50 guys and girls, um, but not everybody makes every event. No, know. they never do. Um, 
if we usually we get around 24 people for an event now you've got some guys who just they aren't travelers or they don't go anywhere if they can't bring their jeep or whatever um you know and you know a lot of the events that we do are you know, far away mm-hmm. you know I mean, of course the stuff we do at home but you know there's a lot of stuff that we do you know in northern illinois uh you know eastern ohio you know stuff like that uh but a lot of guys just don't like traveling. They want to stay home, you know, or they're, they're older guys. It's just, they want to go to the, the local things and that's it, mm-hmm. you know, but it's hard to get everybody together at one event, you know? So we have, you know, plenty of guys that go, you know, between, you know, 20, 25 usually. So. And that's still a pretty uh, good number for one group at an event. Cause uh, you know, and, yeah. cause clearly there's going to be at least two or three other groups there. So, I mean, 25 is a pretty good number. Mm-hmm. I assume you guys do Kanye at each year, correct? Oh, absolutely. That's that's a staple. Yeah. This year is going to be huge. I'm hoping that this will be the first year I'm able to attend. Um, you need to go. It's it, there's one thing that we've got, you know, uh, amongst our our group. One of the things that we got is the reenactor bucket list. Mm-hmm. We got you that know, too. There's there's yeah. Well, I guess you know, uh, you know, same circus, different clowns, sure. no matter where you go, right? Um, but we all have our bucket list of things that you, you want to do, you know, and pl- uh, reenactments you want to go to. And I was lucky enough to cross a lot of those off my list. Um, but yeah, Connie, that's definitely one of those things you, you got to go. Cause if you go once, you're going to go again and again and again. Well, the irony is I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, but I never did any reenacting. Mm-hmm. I didn't get involved in reenacting until I moved to the damn near end of the state. I mean, I'm, the next big town from me is Naples, Florida, which is 45 minutes away. Then after that, you're heading out to Key West. So I, you, you can barely get any further south than I am. And that's kind of for you know, a lot of us Florida guys. The barrier to entry for that event is the travel cost. Um, yeah. If you're driving up there, you're going to pay a, a ton in gas. And you're like, so then you get to the point where, okay, it's almost cheaper to buy a plane ticket, but then you got to fly into Pennsylvania. Then you got to worry about, mm-hmm. well, how am I going to get my weapons, my ammo up there, and all my gear? Then I got to rent a car, and so you know, unless you're able to carpool with a handful of guys, um, and and then that carpool also requires more time off of work because of the you know, unless you drive straight through, you know, you need at least two days, well, four up and back for travel. And so for us down here, that's kind of the barrier to entry for that event is getting off enough days of work to um, be able to make the drive because what we do have is lucky enough we have a a close enough community that some of the guys who do make that long haul will will um, take other guys' guns and ammo up there, and then some of the guys who can't get off the work will make that flight and deal mm-hmm. deal with all that. And then they're basically they're, the equipment that would be cumbersome through TSA will be up there waiting for them. But that's why I say I hope to make it this year. I know plenty of my guys down here who are going, so I'm hoping to uh, be able to get up there this year. Plus, this year will be easier for me because I no longer work in radio. For the last five and a half years, I was a producer of an afternoon radio show. And as the old entertainment saying, the show must go on. Well, that means even when the hosts are on vacation. Well, if they're on vacation, guess who's back running the best of, i.e. the producer. And so for the last five years, getting off those days of work for because I worked in radio was an impossibility. You cannot take off days during the ratings book. And so I could, you know, the only way I could have gotten up a up there would have been to catch a flight and try to get back by Monday. But now that I've left radio and I'm working for my family business, 
I should have the ability to take off the days required to make that travel. And so I'm, especially with this being the 75th anniversary, I mean, this is the year to go, I would assume. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I started going to Conneaut in 2011 and it has gotten just exponentially bigger every single year, bigger to the point where they had to cut off the amount of people that can go. Um, they always bring out, you know, something new. I mean, one year they, it's like, cause the, the thing was, it was cool. You know, you're going out on the beach, Higgins boat mm-hmm. drops you off on the beach and you run up the beach and overhead there's a B 25 flying. There's two, three quarter scale Mustangs that are flying the TBM Avengers flying, you know, and then one year they bring out all those and a B 17. So wow. you've got all these planes flying overhead, and they're just right over the top of you while you're fighting. It it really puts you in the moment. Yeah, you know, and, the, it, you, and the crazy thing about that moment is you have to almost remind yourself to stop and take it in because I don't know about you, but a lot of times when you're running, you're ducking, you're diving, you're shooting, it basically becomes a, symp- a sympath- sympathy – I can never say that word, an orchestra of sound around you and you kind of just block it all out and you're focusing on what you and your group have to do, the objective you have to take. And so you have all this amazing stuff going around you, the flyovers, you know, the, the heavy weapons going off that by the time the event's over, you personally missed most of it because you're focusing on what you're doing and you kind of block all that out and not even mm-hmm. intentionally. It just becomes almost, um, instinct. You're focused on what you have to do. You're going over your head. Oh yeah, I got to go down to this tree. I got to stop. I got to wait for the tanks to move up. You're doing. You're part of the choreography because, after all, a lot of people from the outside, they think we all just kind of run out, go out on the field, and just do whatever. Which yes, tends to happen. You know, every great plan is great until the event starts. But there are some pre-written choreography as far as get group A here, get group B here, pause for this amount of time so the weapons can come up or the Jeep can do this and that. And so while you're doing, while you're making your landing and you're running through all this in your head, a lot of times you personally miss all the great extras that the organizers have included into the event. Mm-hmm. And that's, you're absolutely right. Uh, another thing about it is I really have to get my head off to the, uh, to the organizers for their logistics and communication to move that many people yes, in a coordination. I mean, it goes off like, you know, I've run events, you know, I used to run our world war two weekend and I've run, you know, larger scale events, you know, but not to that scale. Uh, my, my events were like four or 500 people, you know, plus, you know, spectators and what have you. Um, but for me on that smaller scale of 500 people, the logistics, the timing, the communication, everything was really important. But when you're dealing with the FAA for the planes, mm-hmm. you're dealing with the, the boats, you're dealing with, you know, say around eight, 900 reenactors trying to get into a boat, their movement, the battlefield coordination, all that, even if it's to, even if they look at it and say, oh, well, this didn't quite work, it works all of it works because from the, the, the standpoint that I'm seeing as a former event organizer is that there's a timeline and you get to your, you know, the point where you need to be the embarkation, you know, and you, then you, you get on the boat and then you move to this phase point, then you move to that phase point. 
and everything is like you said, it's just a symphony going on around you. You know, for the most part, we don't see it, but it's all going on and it's all being coordinated. And you know, when you're on the other side of the rope, like we are, it's, it's not as, you know, you see all the interesting things that you see, but when the public sees it, it's just, it, it, it's a lot to take in. Well, you know, they, they, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, as I say, as a past organizer, you yourself, you know, and that's just the, the romantic side. Then you have the other side, you have the crowd control, you have the parking, mm-hmm. you have the port johns mm-hmm. you, in some cases you have the vendors, you have the, you know, the insurance required. And so I would, I would assume that an event that large as Connie, they probably have the reenacting the event side, and then they probably have a whole other team strictly for the parking, the civilian, you know, the crowd control, the vendors and all that. So it, it's probably two huge, you know, ongoings trying to make this whole thing work. I mean, I'm sure it's more than just, it's got to be multiple departments. Oh, yo, it's, it's a lot of the town's folk help out, you know, uh, there's, you know, the churches offer their, uh, their parking lots, the local churches, it's the schools use the buses to move people back and forth from uh, shuttles from, you know, parking lots to the, to the area that, you know, uh, with camps and, and where the battle takes place and such. I'm sure it's a um, huge boost the of their of, economy up there. A small town oh, economy, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I mean, I'm, that's probably where a lot of their businesses, especially the restaurants and motels, that's probably where they make part of their yearly nut is during that one weekend. There are people up there that surrender their homes for a week and rent out their homes to people and make a killing. Oh, I'm sure. Because, you know, reenactors are willing to pay whatever you get, you know, five or six guys, like, we can rent this house for, like, $1,000. Everybody mm-hmm. pony up some cash. And instead of having to pay for a hotel that's 10 miles away or 20 miles away, we can stay two blocks away in this, you know, makeshift bed and breakfast, you know. And, you know, they just, they say, okay, you know, just don't burn the house down and we'll be back next week. You yeah, know? they're, they're <laughs> they, kind of they, like, people rent out their houses. Yeah, they're kind of like Airbnb before Airbnb was a thing. Pretty much. But yeah, the town comes together um, and really helps put the event on. A lot of the board members are actually people that live in the town themselves. Um, but they're they're like us; they're they're a nonprofit organization, you know, based on education, and then they they really uh, they pull in a lot of people, you know. And and our jobs as reenactors is when people come by and ask questions, we we help with that education, you know. And it's it's good to see a lot of the. Uh, a lot of vets come out too, and they really put a, a lot of emphasis on bringing the vets out. They have like a front row seat for them. And, VIP. Uh, yeah, pretty much. That's that's how they, they they're carted around in golf carts. Um, they have you know special luncheons for them, special events for them. There's never a shortage of stuff to do at the event. So yes, it. I highly recommend you go. You know, if you go just one time and you make the sacrifice, you know, I highly recommend going. Well, I will definitely put it my best foot forward in trying to get up there this year. Um, I've been wanting to do it since before. When I first got my helmet, first started even looking into World War II reenacting, I would see all these photos coming out of Connie, and it instantly became the one thing I wanted to do. And seven years later, I haven't made it up there yet. But now that I have guys who do go up there yearly, World War II armor, for example, they send their tanks up there. Mm-hmm. My group, uh, First Infantry Division, we work alongside with them 
for their training sessions and my guys go up there so hopefully i can get up there this year but back to you guys if there's anybody in the st louis illinois running area you know how how far does your net go do you have guys from surrounding states that are part of your group or just primarily out of the st louis area we actually uh, cut down our requirement area so we're within a <clears throat> you can join if you live within a two-hour drive of st louis Okay, and so if you're a listener and you live within a two-hour drive of St. Louis and you're either looking for a new group because you fell out of your old one, your old one dissolved, or you're new to reenacting and they wish to uh, reach out to you, where's the best place to go to uh, get some information on the 2nd Ranger Infantry Battalion of St. Louis? Uh, well, we've got Instagram, of course. Uh, we've got Facebook. Um, we've got a website as well, uh, Um so any of those those places, um, uh, so I could give you my email if you like if you like it, and I could pass it on to the higher ups. <coughs> Excuse me. It's uh, K Owens Two Rangers, the number two, at gmail dot com. He's Kevin Owens. He's part of the Second Ranger Infantry Battalion of St. Louis. He's also a firefighter. And an amateur historian like the rest of us, we do this because we love the history. Well, most of us do. Yes, there are the guys who do it simply because they want to, quote-unquote, go play Army. At least that's what their wives tell their friends. But most of us are in it for the the history and to educate the uh, people, primarily the newer generations. But, you know, there are some older cats who come out and want to learn, too. Everybody's welcome. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Kevin, and you have a safe week. And uh, hopefully too. I'll run into you in an event sometime. Yeah, and if I don't hear back from you, then Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. All right. Take care. Thank you.